Section 1 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynette Calkins. Monument, Colorado. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha Von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 1. At seventeen, I was a thoroughly overwrought creature. This, perhaps, I should no longer be aware of today, if it were not that my diaries have been preserved. But in them, the enthusiasms long since fled, the thoughts which have never been thought again, the feelings never again felt, have immortalized themselves, and thus I can judge at this present time what exalted notions had stuck in my silly, pretty head. Even this prettiness, of which my glass has now little left to say, is revealed to me by the portraits of long ago, I can figure to myself what an envied person the Countess Martha Althaus, youthful, thought beautiful, and surrounded by all kinds of luxury, must have been. These remarkable diaries, however, bound in their red covers, point more to melancholy than to joy in life. The question I now ask myself is, was I really so silly as not to recognize the advantages of my position— or was I only so enthusiastic as to believe that only melancholy feelings were elevated and worthy of being expressed in poetical form, and as such enrolled in the red volumes? My lot seems not to have contented me, for thus it is written, O oh, Joan of Arc, heroic virgin, favored of heaven, could I be like thee, to wave the oriflamme, to crown my king, and then die for the fatherland, the beloved? No opportunity offered itself to me of realizing these modest views of life. Again, to be torn to pieces in the circus by a lion as a Christian martyr, another vocation for which I longed, see entry of September 19, 1853, was not to be compassed by me, and so I had plainly to suffer under the consciousness that the great deeds after which my soul thirsted must remain ever unaccomplished, that my life, considered fundamentally, was a failure. Ah, why had I not come into the world as a boy? Another fruitless reproach against destiny, which often found expression in the red volumes. In that case, I would have been able to strive after and to achieve the exalted. Of female heroism, history affords but few examples. How seldom do we succeed in having the Gracchi for our sons, or in carrying our husbands out to the Weisberg gates, or in being saluted by saber-brandishing Magyars with the shout, Hurrah for Maria Theresa, our king! But when one is a man, then one need only gird on the sword and start off to win fame and laurels, win for oneself a throne like Cromwell, or the empire of the world like Bonaparte. I recollect that the highest conception of human greatness seemed to me to be embodied in warlike heroism. For scholars, poets, explorers— I had indeed a sort of respect, but only the winners of battles inspired me with real admiration. These were indeed the chief pillars of history, the rulers of the fate of countries. These were in importance and in elevation near to the divinity, as elevated above all other folk as the peaks of the Alps and Himalayas above the turf and flowers of the valley. From all which I need not conclude that I possessed a heroic nature. The fact was, simply, that I was capable of enthusiasm and impassioned, and so I was, of course, passionately enthusiastic for that which was most highly accounted of by my school books and my entourage. 
My father was a general in the Austrian army, and had fought at Custoza under Father Radetsky, whom he venerated to superstition. What eternal campaigning stories had I to listen to! Dear Papa was so proud of his warlike experiences, and spoke with such satisfaction of the campaigns in which he had fought, that I felt an involuntary pity for every man who possessed no such reminiscences. But what a drawback for the female sex to be excluded from this most magnificent display of the manly feeling of honor and duty! If anything came to my ears about the efforts of women after equality, and of this in my youth but little was heard, and then usually in a tone of contempt and condemnation, I conceived the wish for emancipation only in one direction, viz. that women also should have the right to carry arms and take the field. Ah, how beautiful was it to read in history about a Semiramis or a Catherine too! She carried on war with this or that neighboring state, she conquered this or that country. Speaking generally, it is history which, as our youth are instructed, is the chief source of the admiration of war. From thence it is stamped on the childish mind that the Lord of Armies is constantly decreeing battles, that these are, as it were, the vehicle upon which the destiny of nations is carried on through the ages, that they are the fulfillment of an inevitable law of nature and must always occur from time to time like storms at sea or earthquakes, that terror and woe are indeed connected with them, but the latter is fully counterpoised, for the commonwealth by the importance of the results, for individuals by the blaze of glory which may be won in them, or even by the consciousness of the fulfillment of the most elevated duty. Can there be a more glorious death than that on the field of honor, a nobler immortality than that of the hero? All this comes out clear and unanimous in all schoolbooks of readings for the use of schools, where, besides the formal history, which is only represented as a concatenation of military events, even the separate tales and poems always manage to tell only of heroic deeds of arms. This is a part of the patriotic system of education, since out of every scholar a defender of his country has to be formed, therefore the enthusiasm even of the child must be aroused for this its first duty as a citizen. His spirit must be hardened against the natural horror which the terrors of war might awaken, by passing over as quickly as possible the story of the most fearful massacres and butcheries as of something quite common and necessary, and laying meanwhile all possible stress on the ideal side of this ancient national custom." and it is in this way they have succeeded in forming a race eager for battle and delighting in war. The girls, who indeed are not to take the field, are educated out of the same books as are prepared for the military training of the boys, and so in the female youth arises the same conception which exhausts itself in envy that they have nothing to do with war and in admiration for the military class. What pictures of horror out of all the battles on earth— from the Biblical and Macedonian and Punic Wars, down to the Thirty Years' War and the Wars of Napoleon, were brought before us tender maidens, who in all other things were formed to be gentle and mild. How we saw their cities burnt, and the inhabitants put to the sword, and the conquered trodden down, and all this was a real enjoyment. And of course, through this heaping up and repetition of the horrors, the perception that they were horrors becomes blunted, Everything which belongs to the category of war comes no longer to be regarded from the point of view of humanity, and receives a perfectly peculiar mystico-historico-political consecration. War must be, 
It is the source of the highest dignities and honors. That the girls see very well, and they have had also to learn by heart the poems and tirades in which war is magnified, and thus originate the Spartan mothers, and the mothers of the colors, and the frequent invitations to the cotillion which are given to the corps of officers when it is the turn of the ladies to choose partners. I was not like so many of my companions in rank educated in a convent, but under the direction of governesses and masters in my father's house. My mother I lost early. Our aunt, an old canoness, filled the place of a mother to us children, for there were three younger children. We spent the winter months in Vienna, the summer, on a family estate in Lower Austria. I can remember that I gave my governesses and masters much satisfaction, for I was an industrious and ambitious scholar, gifted with an accurate memory. When I could not, as I have remarked, satisfy my ambition by winning battles like a heroine, I contented myself with passing judgments on them in my lessons, and extorting admiration by my zeal for learning. In the French and English languages I was nearly perfect. In geology and astronomy I made as much progress as was ordinarily accessible in the program of the education of a girl. But in the subject of history I learned more than was required of me. Out of the library of my father I fetched the ponderous works of history, in which I studied in my leisure hours. I always thought myself a little bit cleverer when I could enrich my memory with an event, a name, or a date out of past times. Against pianoforte playing, which was put down in the plan of education, I made a resolute resistance. I possessed neither talent nor desire for music, and felt that in it, for me, no satisfaction of my ambition would be found. I begged so long and so pressingly that my precious time, which I might spend on my other studies, should not be shortened by this meaningless strumming, that my good father let me off this musical servitude to the great grief of my aunt, whose opinion was that without pianoforte playing there could be no proper education. On March 10, 1857, I celebrated my seventeenth birthday. Seventeen already! runs the entry of that date in my diary. This already is in itself a poem. There is no commentary added, but probably I meant by it, and as yet nothing done for immortality. These red volumes do me excellent service now when I want to recall the recollections of a life. They render it possible for me to depict, even down to their minutest details, the feelings of the past, which would have remained in my memory only as faded outlines, and to reproduce whole trains of thought long forgotten, and long silent speeches. In the following carnival I was to be brought out. This prospect delighted me, but not to such an extraordinary degree as is usually the case with young girls. My spirit yearned for something higher than the triumphs of the ballroom. What was it I yearned for? A question that I could have hardly answered to myself. Probably for love, though I was not aware of it. All those glowing dreams of aspiration and ambition which swell the hearts of young men and women, and which long to work themselves out all sorts of ways, as thirst for knowledge, love of travel or adventure, are in reality for the most part only the unrecognized activity of the growing instinct of love. This summer my aunt was ordered a course of the waters at Marienbad. She was pleased to take me with her. Though my official introduction into the so-called world was not to take place till the following winter, I was yet allowed to take part in some little dances at the Kurhaus, 
with an idea also of exercising me in dancing and conversation, so that I might not be altogether too shy and awkward in entering on my first carnival season. But what happened at the first party which I visited? A serious, vital love affair. It was, of course, a lieutenant of hussars. The civilians in the hall appeared to me like cockchafers to butterflies compared to the soldiers, and of the wearers of uniforms present, the hussars were every way the most splendid, and finally, of all the hussars, Count Arno Dotsky was the most dazzling. Over six feet high, with black curly hair, twisted mustaches, glittering white teeth, dark eyes, with such a penetrating and tender expression, in fine, at his question, have you the cotillion free, Countess? I felt that there might be other triumphs as exciting as the banner-waving of the Maid of Orleans or the scepter-waving of the great Catherine, and he, at the age of twenty-two, felt something very similar as he flew around the room in the waltz with the prettiest girl in the hall, for one may say so thirty years afterwards. At any rate, he was probably thinking, To possess thee, thou sweet creature, would outweigh a field marshal's baton. Why, Martha, Martha! remonstrated my aunt, as I sank breathless on the seat at her side, covering her headdress with the floating muslins of my robe. Oh, I beg your pardon, auntie, said I, and sat more upright. I could not help it. I was not finding fault with you for that. My blame was for your behavior with that hussar. You ought not to cling so in dancing, and who would ever look so close into a gentleman's eyes? I blushed deep. Had I committed some unmaidenly offense, and might the incomparable have conceived a bad idea of me? I was relieved of this anxious doubt before the ball was over, for in the course of the supper waltz the incomparable whispered to me, Listen to me. I cannot help it. You must know it even today. I love you. This sounded a little more sweet than Joan's famous voices. However, while the dance was going on, I could not give him any reply. He must have seen this, for he came to a stop. We were standing in an empty corner of the room and could continue the conversation without being overheard. Speak, Countess. What have I to hope? I do not understand you, was my insincere reply. Perhaps you do not believe in love at first sight? I myself held it a fable till now, but today I have experienced the truth of it. How my heart beat, but I was silent. I have leapt head over heels into my fate he continued, you or no one. Decide then for my bliss or my death, for without you I neither can nor will live. Will you be mine? To so direct a question I was obliged to give some reply. I sought for some extremely diplomatic phrase which, without cutting off all hope, would sacrifice nothing of my dignity, but I got out nothing more than a tremulous whispered, yes. Then may I tomorrow propose for your hand to your aunt, and write to Count Althaus? Yes, again, this time a little firmer. Oh, what happiness! So at first sight, you love me too? This time I only answered with my eyes, but they, I fancy, spoke the plainest. Yes! End of chapter 1, part 1